Okay, let's begin. Father in heaven, we thank you for the beautiful sunshine outside. We are grateful for nice weather, but we know that we are in dire need of rain throughout the entire state of California. So I pray that this storm coming in uh, this week will not only materialize, but it will uh, reach down to the south of Southern California and give rain to the entire state and give an abundance of rain so that we can have our water supply replenished. I pray that you will be with all of us who are studying, have projects. You will give us special wisdom and strength and all the things that we need in order to carry on. And I want to pray especially for Tara, who's running for office and has a lot of things to accomplish yet. I pray that you will bless her and help her and help her uh, various activities involved to go well and that she may be able to get the editorship of the Campus Chronicle. Bless us now as we continue our study on on your wrath. May your spirit be with us to guide us and direct us. May we understand more fully what you would have us to understand about your character. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're on page 7 of the document, God's Wrath in the Bible. And I'm going to insert a text that isn't in there because it's one I stumbled over this last week and I thought, well, this is a text we need to look at. And that's Joshua 7. Joshua 7 and verse 26. We'll look at verse 26 and then we'll look at the context. This is the story of the stoning of Achan. And Tara, would you like to read that verse? Over Achan they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore the place has been called the Valley of Acre ever since. So they they stoned Achan, piled up a huge pile of rocks over him, and God's anger turned away. What? How was God's anger manifested in this story? Do you remember? Um, look at verses... Look at the beginning of the chapter. The Israelites did a disrespectful thing. Achan, they start out with Achan, and then uh, Joshua sent men to Jericho from Jericho to Ai, or really I. <laughs> That's how you should pronounce it. Uh, to the east of Bethel, he said, "Scout out the land." So they scouted out the land, and they and they come back with this report. There's no need to send all of us. It's a very small village. Let's just a few of us go up and take it. And they're routed. They were t- soundly routed before the people of Ai. And, and struck down, they st- verse 5 says they struck down 36 of them. And so, of course, Joshua was devastated what has happened. And look at verse 7. And uh, Bianca, why don't you read that? And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all, to give us to the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Would that we had to be content to dwell with beyond the Jordan. Okay. Uh, notice his language. Was, was it to hand us over to the power of the Amorites? He sees God as handing them over. In other words, giving them up, letting them receive the consequences of this sin that Achan did. So clearly God's wrath is handing them over and when it turns away from Israel it means he no, they they have they have taken care of the problem and now he can he can uh, help them win their battles. 
Does that help a little bit? I mean, it's it's in harmony with Romans one uh, that we u- kind of use as as a key text. But uh, there's more to the story than this. What is this thing about devoted things and needing to weed them out? And the whole family of Achan is stoned. Unless you've taken kings and conquests from me, you don't know about devoted things. In the ancient Near East, there was a concept called kerem. And kerem meant that when you went out to slaughter your enemies, you slaughtered them all and everything they had, and you burned everything, and you completely annihilated it. And that was kind of like a whole burnt offering to divinity. And we have evidences of this now in the Canaanites, not just the Moabites who come later on the scene, uh, they're there when Israel comes into Canaan, but we hear about them later on. So not just the Moabites, um, but it's actually prevailing throughout the Semitic cultures of the ancient Near East. There's a there's a text in Canaanite about the goddess Anat, and she's a very uh, the goddess of war, and uh, she instructs her troops go out and do karam to the forces. And there's blood and gore, and, and it's very pervasive. In other words, they, they annihilate everybody. There's, if you read the Bible in a kind of canonical order, recognizing that a lot of Deuteronomy had, well, I, I believe the core of it was attributed to Moses, rightly. There's, there's other things that were added in later on. And Karim, this Karim concept seems to be one of them. Karim, is something the Israelites assumed they were going to do to the Canaanites. When in fact, if you do a, a close reading of the text, uh, go to, to Exodus 23. And I think it's verse 23. And uh, Christina, why don't you start reading? When my angel goes in front of you and brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods or worship them or follow their practices, but you shall utterly demolish them and break their pillars in pieces. Okay, who are they demolishing? Their gods, not the people. Okay, we've got to make that distinction clear. Okay, I'll read the next two verses. If you worship... The Lord your God, the Lord will bless your bread and your water. I'll take sickness away from you, and no woman will miscarry or be infertile in your land. I will let you live, I will let you live a full, long life. Tara, why don't you read the next two verses? I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive the Hevites, the Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way. Okay, Bianca. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possess the land. Okay, Christina. I will set your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will hand over to you the inhabitants of the land, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not live in your land, or they will make you sin against me. For if you worship their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. 
Anything about Israelites killing the Canaanites? Nothing. This is the earliest canonical reference to the conquest of Canaan. And it's God going to drive them out, displace them. There's no killing, not even by God. That's his preferred plan. That's what I call plan A, or the minor voice speaking, saying, this is my preferred will. What happens if you follow, we won't take the time to to read all the passages that we would need to read, but if you follow the narrative, when they crossed the Red Sea, they picked up the weapons of the Egyptians. And it was just a little too tempting to fight. And they assumed, they never got the message, I will drive them out before you. They got the message, we will fight and conquer. And so they... They take their, these Egyptian weapons and they go, they start fighting the Amalekites and other peoples that come in their midst. And God has to do some extraordinary things like you remember Moses holding up his hands and finally getting too tired <laughs> to keep them winning the battle. And, and then so Aaron and her have to hold up his arms. You know, the, the, this is simply God saying, you know, this isn't about fighting. This is about might having the power to take care of this situation. If you'd only trust me, you wouldn't have to fight. But they don't get that message. And if you follow it into Joshua, even when the angel, remember the angel meets Joshua and tells him to take his shoes off because he's standing on holy ground. And then he talks about how he's going to drive them out before him. He never says anything about them fighting Jericho, about slaying people in Jericho. It's when they're just about to go into Jericho that Joshua says, Oh, uh, kill everybody. Don't let anyone be alive. And he, he announces Karim. So now they're stuck, you see. And, and if God doesn't honor their decision to use Karim in this instance, he's going to lose them. So the, everything changes. Oh, the rules change. Everything changes when the people make this kind of decision to do it on their own. So... So that's what lies behind Joshua's uh, 7.26. So in addition to it be God, God handing them over to Ai, uh, you have this background of the story that God never intended them to even fight Ai. Uh, he wanted them to chase them out and let it be. Okay, let's go to First Chronicles 13.10. And I will read this first because it's very... Very succinct. But the Lord became angry with Uzzah and struck him because he had placed his hand on the chest. He died right there before God. So he comes angry. He strikes Uzzah. Uzzah dies. Touching the Ark of the Covenant. How do you read that? What do you do with that? Can you think of any parallels having to do with the sanctuary and holy things? There's the place, um, I don't know if it's in First Chronicles or not. We might have to go to Second to Second uh, Samuel. I don't think it's here. So uh, you, you remember that when the Ark of the Covenant got captured by the Philistines, it got taken to Philistine territory and put before Dagon, and you remember Dagon fell apart <laughs> over the ark. And so they finally sent it back to Israel, and they put it at uh, in, a, in a, what they considered a safe place, but of course it wasn't the sanctuary. And some men decided it got curious to want to know what was in that box. And 
Of course, Israel, the very fact they took it into battle means they think of it as their deity and they think of it as kind of a magic box. And so he, 70 people looked into the ark and died. Now, obviously, 70 people couldn't look into the ark all at once, right? The ark wasn't that big. It was probably the size, length of this table and the size of it, maybe a little wider. Seventy people could not look at it at once. So here are these people looking into the ark and dying, and and they still won't stop looking <laughs> into the ark. I mean, it's kind of kind of uh, sad, but. What is, and then, and then there's another parallel. Nadab and Abihu offer strange fire before the Lord and they die. There's nothing mentioned with, of God's wrath. Um, I'm gonna see if I can find this in 2 Samuel. Oh, I think it is actually 1 Samuel. Yes, it's clear back. The chest is returned. Here it is. So they send the chest back. Okay, but God, verse 19, this is 1 Samuel 6, verse 19. But God struck down some of the people from Beth Shemesh because they looked into the Lord's chest. God struck 70 people and the community grieved because the Lord had struck them so severely. It doesn't say, the people of Shemesh said, who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? So they send messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim and they say, come down and take it back with you. Take this chest back. And they do. And if you go... So the people of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the Lord's chest. And they brought it to Abinadab's house, which is on the hill. And they dedicated Eliezer, Abinadab's son, to care for the chest. Now, a long time passed, a total of 20 years after the chest came to stay in Kiriath-Jerim. And the whole house of Israel yearned for the Lord. So, so here's how this box is being treated and it doesn't say that when God struck these 70 men that he was angry. It just, he struck them. Well, isn't that how the ancient peoples perceived? They perceived God doing everything. God sends a um, lying spirit. Uh, God sends an evil spirit to Saul. God, uh, God does a whole lot of things that we, we understand to be a different kind of relationship. And you even have uh, God tempting David to number Israel, and later in Chronicles, Satan tempts David to number Israel. So so you have this, this variety. And what I would like to suggest is that we apply the principle we discussed, I believe, with Nadab and Abihu. When they offered strange fire from the Lord, fire came out from God and consumed them. Uh, maybe that God simply withdrew his protective hand with Uzzah, because there's no fire mentioned. But it could simply be a direct result of him touching something with God's presence, holy something. And he does it, yes, to protect the ark, but they're doing it all wrong, taking the ark on a ox cart, you know. The priests were just supposed to carry the ark. And I think that was probably true of most ancient Near Eastern cultures. So, so this wasn't something they weren't aware of. So I see it as as a dying because of direct contact with something holy and and being out of harmony with that holiness, the result is death. Uh, so so it's, it's I think we can still apply the principle that when God's wrath, when God is angry, he lets go, he gives up, and consequences, the consequences are inevitable. 
in terms of his wrath. Second Chronicles 25.10, we're going to cross out. That has to do with human anger. It doesn't help us much. Look at Job 19.29. But maybe before we do, I didn't pause and ask if there were any questions about Uzzah. I guess just the words, God struck him down, it sounds so, like, not a consequence, but an action. What yeah. can we do with that? Yeah. Let's look at First Chronicles, before we go to Job, let's look at First Chronicles 10. And we'll start with verse 1. Uh, start with, actually, start with verse 3. And Jonathan, since you haven't read yet, and it's... Tara's turn. We'll start with you. Uh, read a couple of verses. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it, so Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died. So Saul and his three sons died, and all his house died together. When all the Israelites in the valley saw that the army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled, and the Philistines came and occupied them. Okay, hold a minute, and I'll tell you which verse. Read verses 13 and 14, Bianca. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord, and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. (laughs) So there you have it. (laughs) God put Saul to death. Oops, I thought he fell on his own sword. (laughs) Um, and, And keep in mind that the great principle of the ancient Near East is that what... God allows, He does. They, that, that's, I call it divine determinism. It's, it's something that to me is, is just all over the Bible. If we had more time, I'm gonna be unpacking this more at the end of the quarter after you guys go home. Um, but if I had more time, I'd show you countless texts where it says God did something which we know He did not do. It also the prophets. He does all the things that the armies of Babylon do. Um, you know, I will, I will bring famine on you. I will bring the sword against you. I will, and, and it iterates that all the way through. Uh, so that it's very clear that what God allows, what He hands His people over to, and often it'll say, "God handed them over to," or "He, I will hand them over to the armies," and so on. Uh, in the same breath that God does all these things. Okay, let's go to Job 19.29. And Christina, why don't you read verses 28 and 29? If you say how, how we will persecute him and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, so that you may know there is a judgment. So how does wrath bring punishment by the sword? What is the punishment by the sword referred to? What is it? It refers to death, but by the sword refers to a certain kind of death. No, that, that's what Saul did to himself, so that would come to your mind. 
battle. Yes. This is war language. If you perish by the sword, you perish in war and battle. Okay, so how does wrath bring death by war? Well, if God removes his protection from them, then they lose. They're going to lose the battle. That's right. So that's... And... and um, Wrath also brings the sword in the ancient Near Eastern cu- culture in a different way. Kings who go into battle and do conquest are pictured as raging and angry and fierce. Uh, all those uh, words used for divine anger. Okay, let's look at another difficult passage, uh, Psalm 78. And let's start with 44 and read through 51. So Tara, do you want to... Read. He turned the river into blood. They could not drink from their streams. He sent swarms of flies that devoured them and frogs that devastated them. He gave their crops to the grasshoppers, their produce to the locusts. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and the flocks to the t- thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. Okay, read 50 and 51. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck all the firstborn in Egypt, the first issue of their strength in the tents of Ham. This is actually very helpful. Because you notice at the same time it says that God unleashed his anger and he, he, he sent all these things to them. It says he handed them over to them. Uh, it says twice, verse 48, God delivered their cattle over to disease. And uh, verse 50, but delivered their lives over to disease, meaning the firstborn. So God's wrath is giving people up. It's delivering them over. You have this same kind of thing going on that you have in Romans chapter 1. Okay. Let's look at Psalm 90. And... Uh, uh, why don't we just read the psalm? It's not a long psalm. So, uh, Christina, you want to um, read several verses? Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and, and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn us back to dust. You say, turn back, you mortals. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, or like a watch in the night. You sweep them away. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are consumed by your anger. By your wrath we are overwhelmed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. Okay, Jonathan. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish your years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80, or if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. 
May our deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Okay, I have a hard time thinking this was really written by Moses unless it was edited because Moses lived to be 120 years old. And this says basically we lived till 70, <laughs> uh, 80 at the most. <laughs> but anyway, so what do you think? Do we die? This is talking about everybody naturally dying. Do we die because of God's anger? Or is this a perception of the psalmist? We're all dying. We all die. We ha- we have no immortality, so God is angry with us. What do you think? I keep in mind the psalms are honest prayers, um, and they involve perception of the people praying. So the consequences of sin or death is death, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So... Yeah, you, know, you could equate it with God's right? wrath in that way. Understanding God's wrath is letting people go, and right, not because keeping it's them the natural lo- consequences alive. of your sin. Right. It, some people do die in direct consequence of their sin. Some die in the consequence of their parents' sins, <laughs> or their grandparents. Yeah, and some just simply die in consequence of living in a sinful world. So, you can see all of that as as divine anger. But not actively God doing it. It's it's the result of living with the consequences of sin that God lets go. He lets happen, uh, lest we ever think that that we can just take His ways and His character and and the things He wants us to do just in a careless manner and not think that there are any consequences. There are consequences. So we, we can read it that way. I tend to see this as the psalmist perception of seeing people die. He's older, I would guess. He's nearing 70 or maybe in his mid-70s. And and he knows that death awaits him. And and so it, it seems that uh, God is angry. Elderly people do suffer depression a lot. Because the the wind-up of their life is hard to handle. Uh, they feel their body's no longer able to do what they used to do and all kinds of things uh, bother them. So it would be very easy to write a psalm like this when, you're, when your strength is failing and you're beginning to be weak. Okay, let's um, move now to the prophets. Uh, and Isaiah 13.5 is our first one. Let's start actually with verse 2. And I don't remember who read last. Let's see. We're going to read through verse 5. So why don't you just read all five verses? On a bare hill, raise a signal. Cry aloud to them. Wave the hand for them to enter. The gates of the noble. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains, as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens. The Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. So he's talking about what? What do you think he's talking about? It could be a prophecy of Babylon. It could also be a prophecy of Assyria. Assyria is closer to Isaiah. And Assyria 
did, Sennacherib did conquer a number of cities of Judah, uh, which isn't told so much in Chronicles. It's told by Sennacherib himself uh, in his annals that uh, he talks about how he killed, he, he wiped out this town, Israelite town, this, I mean, this Jude, town of Judah, this town of Judah, quite a list. And he says, I shut up Isaiah, I'm mean, sorry, Hezekiah in his, in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. <laughs> but he didn't conquer it. No, he doesn't admit to conquering it. Um, so he is being honest at least. Uh, but it does seem that he did take a number of towns of Judah. Uh, so if this is Assyria, and God says, I, I'm mustering my heavenly forces, and I'm mustering... sounds like God's on the side of the Assyrians here. <sighs> and this is the day of his... As, as instruments of his fury. So what do we do with that? What was, what was the... Uh, the... What was what was Israel, what were Israel and Judah doing uh, to invite an invasion by the Assyrians? Because usually they Israel and Judah did something wrong, and then they get invaded, and then by the time by the time of Hezekiah, they were on a, a downward course of idolatry that would be culminated during that Manasseh's reign with child sacrifices. In fact, there's some evidence in the text that Solomon himself, when he married all those women, he brought in their gods, which include Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, who they also would offer sacrifices to, human sacrifice, child sacrifices to. And Moloch, who was a, an Amorite god or a Canaanite god, that they did child sacrifice to. And so you have rank idolatry going on. And there's highs and there's low. I mean, Hezekiah is a high period, actually. Um, but, of course, Isaiah, this is early in Isaiah's ministry. If you go to chapter 1, uh, he, he, he prophesied in Isaiah, Jotham, and Ahaz's days. And Ahaz, I believe, was also introduced child sacrifice. So you have some pretty gross idolatry going on in Jerusalem. And um, it's true, God saves the city because of Hezekiah. This is later on down the road. So when when uh, Isaiah is prophesying, he's prophesying these things because there's so much idolatry. And of course, keep in mind, the only way God can get across to Israelites and, and the people of Judah, that he is the only God they are to worship. I mean, they're steeped in polytheism. Polytheism is all around them. It's like trying to tell you, that teach you that there is truth in a postmodern world where every road leads to good things. Uh, And there really is no truth. Everything's relative. So try to teach monotheism to polytheists. God chose, chose the covenant relationship uh, as a means of doing that. And in ancient Near Eastern treaties, which the covenant is something like a treaty, ancient Near Eastern treaties, if you annexed a country, if you were a king who conquered a nation, and you annexed them to you as a vassal, they were supposed to bring you tribute at once a year, and uh, you would send envoys to get it. And if they didn't get it, uh, that was considered rebellion 
and it would lead them to punish severely the vassal. So, so what we have here is, is God trying very hard to say, if you go through other idols, you're gone. I, I, I cannot bring you back because you will confuse me with all these other gods. You'll see me as just like them. And, and you'll see me as just another god to worship, uh, to add to your pantheon. And so, so this is why this kind of thing is, is taking place. So are you suggesting, Jonathan, that maybe this is abandonment by God? I mean, just giving them over to the forces? If if we go to Isaiah 13, back to 13, he calls his warriors, my proud, jubilant ones, that certainly was the Assyrians, uh, to execute my wrath. And they are coming, verse 5, from a distant land, from faraway heavens, the Lord and the instruments of his fury to destroy the whole land. See, I, I, what this is talking about is what is going to happen with the Assyrian armies. Is that God really actively going directly to the Assyrians and saying, I want you to go get the, my people. <laughs> you know, that's how ancient Near Eastern people would perceive it. In fact, there's a, there's an interesting story about how Marduk was not being well treated in his temple, the Isagila, and, uh, he called to the Elamites to come get him so that he would get better treatment. He wasn't getting the proper food and proper clothing and, and all the things that the Babylonians did to keep their gods happy. And so he calls the Elamites to come get him. And the Elamites come and take him where he can get better treatment. And that's an, that's an, an explanation for why Marduk is taken captive by the Elamites. Okay. So that's how, that's how ancient Near Eastern minds saw it. But I think we can recognize that this is God simply letting the Assyrians come, not protecting Israel or, or Judah from that. Kind of the same thing again in Habakkuk 1. It says, I'm rousing the Chaldeans, which uh-huh, are the Babylonians. Uh-huh. And then it goes on to explain how horrible the Babylonians are. Yes. Why thing. are you doing... And, and often what will happen is God said. Um, I will raise up so and so for to be your punishment, and then a few pages later, but they did more than I intended them to do, so I'm going to raise up so and so to punish them, and and uh, there you have this this kind of endless cycle. But what remember what God says He does is language, and if we understand the language is not inspired, it reflects the human perceptions of how. God behaves. Okay, let's look at Isaiah 27, verses 2 to 5. On that day, sing about a delightful vineyard. I, the Lord, am its guardian. Every moment I water it, day and night I guard it from attack. I am not angry, but if it yields thorns and thistles for me, I will march to battle against it. I will torch it completely. Or let them cling to me for refuge. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. So if you yield thorns and thistles instead of good fruit, I will battle you. And how does God battle them? He allows armies to come. So I think it's, it's, it's some, it's a way of looking at God doing it. How does God do it? How does God get angry? What does he do when he gets angry? What is really happening behind the text? And getting behind the human language to seeing how God does things. 
Our time is up. Do you want to try to finish these last few texts, or do you want to wait till next week? We have one, two, three. <laughs> the last three on this page. Yeah, let's try. Jeremiah 32, 31. And uh, Jonathan, why don't you read? From the day it was built into now, the city has so aroused my anger and wrath that I must remove it from my sight. The people of Israel and Judah have provoked me by all the evil they have done. They, their kings, their officials, their priests and prophets, the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem. They turn their backs to me and not their faces, though I taught them again and again. They will not listen or respond to discipline. They set up their vile images in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. They built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnon to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Molech, though I never commanded, nor did it enter my mind that they should do such a detestable thing to so make Judah sin. You are saying about this city, by the sword, famine, and plague, it will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon. But this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banish them in my furious anger and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. Okay, notice verse 36. This city will be handed over to the king of Babylon through sword and famine and disease. So again, it's God giving them up. And he doesn't directly scatter them by giving them up. The Babylonians scatter them. Okay, read uh, verses 39 to 41, Bianca, or verse 38 to 41. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make them with an everlasting covenant. I will make with them an everlasting covenant, and I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Okay, look at uh, seven Jeremiah seven fourteen. Actually, fourteen and fifteen. I'm sorry, seven nineteen. But actually, why don't we look at fifteen and nineteen? Christina, you want to read those two verses? And I will cast you out of my sight, just as I cast out all your kinfolk, all the offspring of Ephraim. Um, Verse 19. Is it I whom they provoke, says the Lord? Is, Is it not themselves to their own hurt? Yeah. And then he talks about pouring out his anger. Well... It's, they're hurting themselves, then he's pouring out his anger by giving them up to the consequences of their choice. And if you read Jeremiah very carefully, it becomes clear that God's original plan was for them to submit to Nebuchadnezzar and pay him tribute. They could have stayed in the land. They would have been under his dominion. But because they've listened to the false prophets instead of Jeremiah, they refuse to do that. Obviously, Nebuchadnezzar thinks they're rebelling against him by not paying him tribute, so he comes against them. God says, well, at least submit to him, you know, surrender to him, because then 
you'll only go into captivity, you won't die. And they still won't listen to, to Jeremiah, and so they die. So this is not God directly doing it, this is God permitting it. And the reason God, one reason he portrays himself as doing it is because ordinarily God is the God who protects us. He loves to protect his children. And so for him to withdraw that protection is a strange act. Okay, Ezekiel 7, 5 to 20. This is the, one of the most difficult passages in the prophets. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read it. The Lord God proclaims disaster, a singular disaster. Look, it comes. The end has come. Oh, yes, it has come. It has come to you. Look, it is here. You who live on the earth, you are finally caught in your own trap. The time has come. The day draws near. On the hills, panic, not glory. And now it is near. Against you I will pour out my wrath, and my anger will be satiated or satisfied. I will appease myself. (laughs) I'll judge you according to your ways and turn all your detestable practices against you. I won't shed a tear or show any pity when I turn your ways against you. Notice he will turn your ways against them. And your detestable practices stay with you. Then you will know that I am the Lord and the one who strikes you. That's what they would know, isn't it? That's the way they would perceive it. And then he talks about the violence that will come. I'm going to skip over these verses. And and what is going to happen to them by the enemy forces. Verse 21, I'll hand it over to foreigners as loot taken in war. These are their detestable images. When I hide my face, verse 22, when I hide my face from my people, foreigners will defile my treasured place. Violent intruders will invade it. They will defile it. So this is God hiding his face. This is how he strikes. This is how he destroys. In his wrath, he hides his face. And then verse chapter 16, verse 22. There's something wrong here. Oh, 1642, sorry. When I have satisfied my anger and my rage is turned away from you, I will be calm and no longer angry. God appeased by destruction. How do we read that? This is, this is a very difficult passage. I would like to suggest that now they're in Babylon. Ezekiel is the prophet in Babylon, speaking to the Israel, the Jews who are in Babylon. And angry gods and angry deities needing appeasement are everywhere in Babylon. And so he has a sense he's speaking Babylonian. Because idolatry does that. Idolatry makes people think God is angry. Idol worship really is about appeasement. And the reason you need to worship all these gods is not because you think they're worthy of praise, but because you think that you have to appease them or one of them is going to get angry at you. And so he's really Ezekiel is really speaking their language. Okay, why don't we have prayer? Close. Father, we thank you that despite the humanness of the language and and despite how vivid it seems that you are doing these things, that we can look behind it and recognize that um, the way you do it is to hide your face, to let us go, to keep, to like, stop protecting us. Pray that we may understand this and, and may recognize that what you want us to fear is not you, but sin and its consequences. May this be our understanding of you and your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen.
Jesus name amen Jesus name amen